I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye and this week you're in for such a treat. I am joined by registered dietitian and co-founder, co-author of Intuitive Eating, Evelyn Tribbley. And if you've listened to previous episodes before, you know that the work of intuitive eating has been such a huge inspiration for me personally and professionally. It's certainly inspired my book, Train Happy, this podcast, Intuitive Movement, and I'm really excited for you to hear this discussion with Evelyn because we really tried to myth bust and you know go a bit deeper into the FAQs around intuitive eating and she is full of such wisdom around this work she's been doing it for 25 years so uh, it was such such an honor for me to kind of put those questions to her and hear the answers um, because I really think you'll you and I will gain so much from this episode Now, if you are looking to improve your relationship with fitness, I really recommend checking out my Intuitive Movement 101 course in a few weeks. This is going to be held on Wednesday, August 12th at 7pm UK time. It will be online. The workshop will be around the principles of intuitive movement as adapted from the intuitive eating principles. We'll then have a Q&A session where we can have, uh, you can ask, ask your questions, we can have a discussion and explore all that we've covered in the workshop. And we're going to be finishing with a dance party workout because this is about finding joy in movement and what's more fun than dancing around in your living room with a bunch of strangers on the internet. Um, it's going to be so much fun. So you can find all the info via the Eventbrite link in the info box, which I have added there for you. And I really look forward to seeing you there. So before we get into this episode, just a reminder, if you do enjoy it, to use the hashtag Train Happy Podcast if posted on social media. I love seeing your posts about it. Tag at Train Happy Podcast and myself at Tally Rye, as I really love to see um, your thoughts about the episode and what you've learned. Um, and yeah, enjoy this episode. Evelyn is fantastic. And yeah, I'll let this interview speak for itself. This week, I am so thrilled to be joined by, for me, one of the people who started my journey for me. Um, we have the brilliant Evelyn Chibley. And Evelyn, I would love you to introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and um, why so many people love you. Oh my God. Because <laughs> they do, they do. You're putting me on the spot. I'll, I'll make it short. Uh, well, I'm the co-author of, of Intuitive Eating, and it's a, it's a model Elise Rush and I created 25 years ago. I'm a, a dietitian. I'm a meditator. I'm a former competitive athlete. That's one of my claim to fame to myself is I qualified for the first uh, Olympic trials marathon, the first year they let women run that distance. Up until that time, it had only been 1,500 meters. So that was a, it's been a huge source of pride for me that I still, I still remember. That's very cool. That is and very now my, cool. Thank you. And now, and now one of my, my personal aspirations is to be a ping pong ninja. So I actually take uh, lessons from a ping pong professional. 
I love this. It's so humbling and I love it. So well, yeah, you know, know a little bit about um, me. Yeah, and you know that this is called the Train Happy Podcast and we're very much all about joyful movement and yeah. finding different activities and movement and sport and things that make you feel good. And I love, no one has said ping pong yet, so that's unique. I love that. Um, <laughs> and how have you been during these COVID times? I know it's been pretty rough for people, but um, are you holding up? Are you hanging in there? Yeah, you know what? It's been a really rough time. It's been rough for me. It's been rough for my patients. And so what I do now, instead of just sugarcoating it and saying I'm fine, mm -hmm. I, I, I say how I really am, you know, and I've been really exhausted with all of this uncertainty. Some people know this, but my my father passed away on, on June 11th. And one of the biggest hardships was when he was hospitalized at the end of March because of COVID, we were not allowed to visit him. Yeah. And he's hard of hearing. So trying and calling him, it just felt like uh, something against humanity. But I'm happy to say in his, in his fi on his final day, they let us in and, and visit him. And so we got to be there with him when he passed. And I just kept thinking about all people in, in the world who are losing loved ones or are sick or they're losing their jobs, there's so much uncertainty right now, you know, financial uncertainty, pandemic uncertainty, racial justice uh, uncertainty. And so at the same time, I see this as an opportunity for, for, for big change, but I think we need to own. I had a really hard time. Um, I'm, I'm, I just finished working on another book and I actually had to ask for two deadline extensions, which you really, you don't do uh, in, in, in publishing, although the, 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 between the pandemic and with my dad it's like I, I wasn't able to write and I just thought you know what I just need the space and I don't want to fake it you know what I mean I wanted to have something really meaningful and so the reason I share that is I have a lot of patients right now who have a lot of shame because they haven't been quote uh, productive in this pandemic it's like you know what stress is exhausting and uncertainty is exhausting and we need to connect with our humanity and maybe we can have practice some self-care and and self-compassion in these difficult times yeah, I mean, I was, I've just been in the hairdressers and the conversation was, so what, what did you do during lockdown? And I thought, not really much, not really anything. And actually, that is huge in and of itself. I think, oh, you know, we're yeah. so used to living life at 100 miles an hour and we're not slowing down and we're not, um, you know, I think that also, we'll, we'll get into this later on, but I think that the pace in which we've all lived life for so long and with you know so many distractions and you know things to go to and worry about and care for and actually to stop kind of gives you an opportunity to tune into yourself a bit more and to yeah. almost kind of look inwards um and feel a bit feel a bit more connected there and I think um I think for me that's a silver lining but I think also to say yeah really that for me that if that's a productive thing then that's me being still for the first time in a decade you know yeah. and sometimes we get humbled into submission you know mm -hmm. that I, I, I don't have the desire or the energy to do anything that we could put the cross your box off you know and the check those who like to check off boxes and and sometimes we just need to change what that all looks like to begin with you know what I engaged in self-care. I took care of myself for the first time. You know, I took a social media break for about six weeks and I was off all social media, all notifications. And there was this part of me that's, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to come back. And I didn't promote the book or anything like that, but it just, it wasn't there. It wasn't in me. And 
the, the, the funny thing is I've been getting actually positive feedback from people saying that was such good modeling. And I wish I could say I was doing it to model, but I wasn't. I was actually, I didn't have the capacity and I just need to take care of myself. But it's wonderful to hear the validation if it's helped other people in the process. I say, I say, yay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you, we've kind of mentioned intuitive eating and you are the brains behind that along with Elise Resch who is your other co-author and I would love people to hear who are new to you new to intuitive eating hear how firstly you got into dietetics and secondly um how intuitive eating originally came about and what was the inspiration to create that framework oh my gosh these are all such long answers (laughs) (laughs) we've got time we've got time it's okay so um, I got into, into dietetics kind of in a backwards way. Um, I was really an avid runner uh, in high school. I ran on the boys' track team. I took pride in beating the boys, lettering in the boys, because they didn't have girls' track team at the, at the time. And so when I went to college, I wanted to uh, be on the track and cross-country team. And as far as a major is concerned, I wanted to be a coach. So I wanted, I wanted to get a degree education but at that time as I was embarking on that major I think it was in the second year the funding in our state was drying up and I thought I'm not going to have a career pathway if I stay on this what else can I do this is such a weird story I was in the student union buying lunch and I see this book and it says nutrition textbook and I thought aha I wonder who this belongs to and I wonder if that's a career pathway so I waited for the student to show up And it turned out she was the president of the Student Dietetic Association, told me about all the different pathways. She said, you should check it out. I took a class, loved the teacher, loved the nutrition aspect. I was always curious about what can I eat to run faster and and beat the boys. That used to be my motivation. So anyways, that's how I got into nutrition. And it was, um, I loved it. And I still do. I love nutrition. But what I'm really also passionate with is the psychology around the eating. There's so much more uh, to eating than just the foods that you put into your body. You know, it's, it's the connection. It's the socialization. It's, um, it's so much there. And so fast forward, um, how I got, how Lisa and I got stumbled into into creating the intuitive eating. It wasn't a stumbling actually. Um, We were both, I think I had been at least 10 years into my career by this point and getting really frustrated working in in the traditional dietetic model, which is really diet culture. If you want to just be really straightforward, it's diet culture. And it's like, this isn't working. We're creating these beautiful plans with exchange, you know, food groups and that kind of stuff. And people would do well in the beginning and they'd come back uh, not doing so well, blaming themselves. And Elise and I were we're like, you know what? This does not feel good. There's something wrong with this system. And we, we took a deep dive. We looked at the research, what the research was telling us. We considered our own clinical experiences. We looked at the popular books that were out at that time. And one popular book that really had an impact on us was Overcoming Overeating by Hirsch and Munter, where they were saying, eat whatever you want. And, but they were coming from a psychological aspect. And we thought, well, what's, what's the underpinning of that? So long story short, we um, created this proposal, you know, with, with intuitive eating, with the, the original name of the book was, I think, called Diet Backlash. And that, because I was also very influenced by Susan Faludi's book on, on backlash and this idea that when you diet, you're going to get these backlashes of, of, of problems in terms of obsession with food and loss of control eating and all these other kinds of things. And where we really, really got lucky is the publisher that wanted to 
publish our manuscript said, you know, we love the concept, but we'd like you to really turn it into more like steps as opposed to a manifesto, you know? Mm -hmm. And what was brilliant about that, we didn't know it at the time. And we said, sure, we turned it into principles. It made it measurable. So some years after the book was published, about six years later, Tracy Tilka from the United States, a scientist created the intuitive eating assessment scale. And by doing that, and she validated it, she asked two questions. Uh, is there really something to intuitive eating and can we measure who the intuitive eater is? And the answer was yes and yes. And because of that assessment scale, it put intuitive eating on the research map. So fast forward now 25 years later, we can now say intuitive eating is evidence-based. Before it was like evidence-inspired and now we have over 125 studies on our work and it's just so exciting. In fact, there was just an intervention study. I we talk about it in the book, but it hadn't been published yet. It officially got published about two weeks ago in which they took women with disordered eating behavior. And what that meant was they had disordered eating behavior like binge eating, uh, like purging, like compensatory exercise, but they did not meet the criteria for eating disorders. And they used the intuitive eating workbook as their intervention tool. And the cool thing about um, the workbook, there's even a backstory to that, but let me finish the, the, what happened with this research is they used <laughs> it as an intervention. And what they found across the board where they did it as a self-study where individuals just did it on their own and talked to an interventionist 20 minutes eight, uh, during, during an eight week period or they did a group period across the board, they had improvement. The binge eating went down, life satisfaction went up, intuitive eating improved. So it's super, super exciting, but it's a pilot study and there wasn't a control group. So now the next step is to get a control group. But the thing that was so cool and you might appreciate this side story is I was on another podcast saying that one of my motivations for creating the intuitive eating workbook was to have a standardized intervention and a researcher heard me and contacted me and I said okay let's go let's see what we can do here you know so I had her team went through the intuitive eating certification process and it felt like such an honor to also I work with them to debrief them after the study and they were just so excited to see the transformation in all these women you know and the other thing that's really cool about this study I should I should mention they really made an effort to make sure they were seeking a diverse women from a variety of uh, races and ethnicities and so because all too often in the space of eating disorders and I would say in intuitive eating we hear we don't have enough uh, information and research from people from marginalized uh, communities so this is at least a, the right step in the right direction Woo, that was a long answer <laughs> It was a great one though. We love long answers and yeah. Um, oh. I think it's so exciting. I saw you share that study online and it just, I think um, for so many people's personal experience, I think it really just confirms what yeah. we have experienced, what I have experienced, but um, it's really exciting to see it kind of validated in that way. And I can't wait to see what's next. It seems that the momentum is just kind of strengthening and strengthening. And I would love to know a little bit more about when you were kind of working in clinic, in, I presume was it kind of more weight management style previously? It, 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 was, it was a private, Lisa and I were both in private practice. I do have a background working clinically in hospitals. 
I do that too, but I, I needed more freedom. <laughs> and it was in, um, in the beginning when I said we're working traditionally, yeah, it was weight management, you know, mm. and what that is. And, and one of the things when I'm training health professionals, most health professionals will acknowledge and agree that dieting doesn't work. And then I will, in terms of causing harm, it doesn't work. It's not sustainable. You know, by year five, everyone's getting all their weight back. And two thirds of those people have gained back more than what they've lost, which is shocking to a lot of people. And it causes harm, like weight stigma and eating disorder risk and all these other kinds of things. And so most health professionals, they know that dieting doesn't work. But then I say, do you know that these studies I'm talking about, most of them have been medically supervised, so you don't get a pass here. Mm-hmm. And that's when it was this big, I get these big, you know, staring eyeballs at me when I do these at, at conferences. And, and it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought because I'm a health professional, Helping people reduce their eating, it's, it's a good thing. And my answer is you might have all the best intentions of the world, but it causes harm. And what ends up happening, people really get into this place of dissonance. You know, Lisa and I both had cognitive dissonance. That's why we looked at there's got to be another way of doing this. And so what I find is because, especially in the medical fields and professions, weight centric practices are espoused over and over and over again, especially uh, in the last five to 10 years being part of a policy that when I present the body of research showing all this harm and and inefficacy, people are like in this place of of dissonance because it's challenging not only what they learned, but it's become part of their belief system. And it takes a while to undo that, you know? And so to anyone listening, and if you're in that, in that thing or in that in that place, my suggestion would be is is do some more reading, start to get really clear about this. I never expect just because one time I might give, you know, all these facts and figures and amazing studies. I wish that alone was enough to change people's minds, but they, they need to wrestle with this and read the data for themselves and start thinking about what are you seeing in your own practice. And so that's the thing I, I've really been stressing more of. When we created this model, this is based on our lived experience as practitioners seeing all this harm over and over and over again. And I think because Elise and I both specialize in eating disorders, we were coming from that lens, which mm-hmm. let us really look at some other things in a different way. It, it, I think we had more flexibility to examine and question these kinds of things, you know? And how would you describe intuitive eating to those who, I know that some people listening are still kind of like, okay, well, we know it's called intuitive eating, but what are these principles and how would you describe it to someone who's never heard of it before and how does it work? You know, and I, it's so funny. Every time I get asked that question, I ask it, I answer it in a different way because who, whoever is listening, I, I want to connect with them, mm. you know? So when I talk to health professionals or scientists, I might say one thing when I'm talking to teenagers, I'll say, it's really about you being the expert of your body. No one can be the boss of you. And then it's like, Ooh, tell me more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that is only, you know, your thoughts, your feelings, your experiences, only, you know, what's going to satisfy you from a meal perspective, what's going to satisfy your your hunger. And as we start to tend and befriend our body, we get these powerful messages that let us get our our needs met. So intuitive eating is actually putting you, the client, the reader, the consumer, whatever term you want to use, in charge. I am merely the tour guide. I'm giving you a map and I'm saying, here's some less, uh, here's some rides you might want to take. Let's try this ride, the satisfaction ride. (laughs) 
<laughs> and let's see if you like it, you know? And so what I find a lot, because so many people have been indoctrinated in diet culture and it's so sneaky. I've had so many people not relate to even to the term diet. Oh, I don't diet, I, but I do the whole 30 or I do, you know, this or that. And what they haven't realized is the shape-shifting nature of diet culture that now, instead of saying a diet, they call it a lifestyle or a wellness. And sadly, some people are using intuitive eating and co-opting it uh, in ways that we never intended it. So what I would really say, another short way of saying this is intuitive eating is a self-care eating framework with, two, with 10 principles. And these are not rigid rules. They're guidelines. They're guideposts. And this is not a process of pass or fail. In fact, it is a process, but it's a journey of discovery. There's learning. What did you learn from that experience? You know, and what happens is diet culture really cultivates this binary type of thinking, all or none, good or bad. I was on my diet. I was off my diet. And even to the point, sometimes they, they, try to reduce intuitive eating to this very reductionist idea of you just eat when you're hungry and you stop when you're full. And it's so much more complicated than that. And I've had patients think that they blew it because they didn't start eating when they were precisely hungry or they didn't stop when they were precisely full, not realizing our body is so adaptive. So let's say you did eat past fullness and you were really uncomfortable. Okay, let's see what your body does as a result of that. But people get scared, they panic, they react by maybe vowing I'm not going to eat something or I'm going to do something compensatory like exercise more. And that disrupts trust between them and their body. They don't get to see what their body would have naturally done. So the more somebody has been on some kind of diet, some kind of food plan, it disrupts trust. And I see, I've heard from a lot of people who they've read intuitive eating or they've read some of the posts I do on Instagram. And they'll say, you know, it really sounds awesome for other people. Mm -hmm. But I don't think my it'll work for my body. And when I get behind that, what's what's behind this doubt? And by the way, doubt is fine to have. I, I love people to own however it is that they feel, but they feel that there's something broken about their body. This brokenness is not them. It's our culture. It's our diet culture that's so fear-mongering, you know? So it, it can be really, really problematic in that way. Yeah, and I... I think the same is for when what I kind of work on with intuitive movement. So kind of wow. um, taking the work you've done around how to build trust with your body around food and applying that to fitness. And I think in the similar way that people will say, but if I listen to my body, I'm never going to stop eating. I'm never going to, oh, yeah. you know, if I listen to my body, I'll just, I'm only going to eat, um, takeaways. I'm only going to go mm. and, you know, and it's the same with exercise. If I listen to my body and I, I wouldn't move at all. I wouldn't do anything. And you, you kind of hear the same similar feedback. Um, and I think it'd be, yeah, I have a ton of questions lined up kind of like these FAQs for later on. So I think okay. we'll save them. I think we'll save them for then. Um, can I just say something to what you just said? I yeah, have please, to, I really please, want please, please. to. <laughs> Because you're right. I hear that a lot. I hear it about the movement. When someone says that to me about movement, and I'll say, you know, when I hear that, that usually reflects to me a history of exhaustion. You know, and if you've only been moving when you've been restricting your food, I frankly don't know how you do that. I wouldn't want to move. And I'm somebody, by the way, who naturally, I just, I've always loved to play, you know, mm. but when you're not feeding yourself, oh 
my God, I wouldn't want to move either. I think it's your exhaustion speaking, this fear that once you stop, you'll never get back up. And the same, in a similar way with, with the eating, I hear this all the time. Oh my God, if I let myself eat whatever I want to, I'd never stop eating candy or chips or crisps or whatever. And again, that's re reflection of deprivation. When you think you're never going to have that food again, it reinforces the fear. It disconnects you from that trust. And conversely, on the other hand, if you know, always know you had access to food, it's like, well, do I really want it now? If I eat it now, am I going to enjoy it? It's completely different. So, but, but these are common questions. I encourage people to ask these kinds of questions. Yeah. I mean, I have a little anecdote from the last Ooh. few weeks of a time when, so I went um, shopping with my, um, my boyfriend, sister and stepmom. And, um, you know, they're not big eaters, full stop. Um, and I found myself not having lunch one day. Oh. And I've become so tuned in with my kind of sense of hunger and I know regularly when I need feeding and all this kind of stuff. But I was just in a situation where I couldn't really access like a proper meal. And I was ravenous. I was absolutely yeah. ravenous. And I haven't been that ravenous in a long time. And I felt so primally hungry that I felt yeah. that I would eat anything I could. As soon as I walked into the kitchen, I was going to eat anything I could get my hands on and as much as I could. And I found that so interesting because as you said, like, I think some people would consider that, oh, I failed intuitive eating because I let myself get overly hungry. Um, but I considered it like, oh, this is so interesting. So when I let, when I don't feed myself regularly and give myself adequate food and fuel to go about my day and do what I need to do, firstly, my brain stops working. But secondly, I, I will then go and eat anything I can get my hands on. And I thought yeah. that was so interesting because I think a lot of people live in that mindset um, when we're in diet culture of, you know, I used to, you know, I used to be allowing myself to get super hungry before I would allow myself to eat because mm. I felt like, you know, otherwise you, you shouldn't have, you know, you, you didn't earn it or, you know, you have to be like, you know, super, super hungry to eat. And I just found that really interesting that um, this process of intuitive eating has kind of made me aware of that, made me aware of my reaction to being deprived and my reaction to when I eat consistently and regularly, which works for me. And yeah, it was just, a, it was just a bit of a learning curve of like, ah, oh, this is one of those like moments where I have to, this is a reminder to Tally, you need to eat regularly <laughs> and you need snacks. Yeah. And uh, that's not a bad thing, but I think diet no. culture tells us that like, that's wrong. And yeah, it's so interesting. Well, and you're making a really good point. I want to build on that because it's a profound point. And because what happens when, when I've worked with patients that have that kind of hunger, there's the urgency and the intensity and it scares the bejeebers out of them. And what I say, and this, cause I, I, I live near the ocean and we go on the waves and play all the time. You know, if, if a big set comes, you know, you go underneath the water, you hold your breath and the waves keep coming in. And then finally you come up and often what's going to happen. It's not this polite inhale. You are gas gasping for dear life. And no one says, oh my God, you have loss of control breathing. Oh my God, you're addicted to air. Oh, you're, <laughs> you're breathing too much. Everyone knows it's a natural compensatory response from inadequate, uh, in in inadequate um, air. And if we can use that same perspective from food and say instead, oh, this is my body working. 
my body's working. It might not feel good. Own the fact. Own the fact that the hunger's inconvenient. It's hitting you at a time when you didn't want to eat. You can own all of that, but your body's working. And then I say, good for you that you listen to it. Isn't it interesting how intense it gets? It's survival time. And especially the more you've had a history of restricting food, it gets even more profound. And sadly, over the years, I've had patients who get terrified of hunger. And I'll say, oh, what's, what's, what's the fear? Well, what do you do because you're afraid of it? Because when people are afraid of something, they avoid it. They go, I try and trick my hunger. They do all kinds of things. And I say, what happens? Well, then the hunger gets bigger. And for some people, they end up getting into some binge eating. And I'll mm -hmm. say, you know, that's a natural compensatory uh, effect from not getting enough to eat. And when your body gets really hungry, it's urgent, it's primal. It can make it feel like it's a binge. And sometimes it is an outright binge. But I'm even reluctant to say that if it's a natural compensatory effect. But the moment someone adds some shame onto that, that I did something wrong, this is against diet culture laws, as opposed to, oh, you know what, I'm having a really hungry day. Oh my gosh, I went too long without eating. This is what happens. And when I do that, it doesn't feel good. You know, we need to normalize it and not pathologize it. I do find it really interesting how people are like, oh, I'm, why am I hungry a few hours after lunch when I've owned, well, I've owned, I ate in a few hours ago. Like, why am I hungry again? And you're like, because your body's working and it's just asking for I do, more food. I do that all the time. I do it all the time. In fact, you know what I do? I do this a lot too, is I'll say, you know, have you ever gone to the bathroom? Let's say you're going on a long car ride or you're going into a long meeting. And then all of a sudden you have to go only an hour later. I don't know anyone that ever questions. Oh my God. I have to pee again. Like that can't be, no, that can't be. No one questions it. It's annoying, absolutely annoying. You go and you do your thing and then you don't say, well, am I peeing too much? Am I peeing too little? Because we haven't put judgment on that natural body process, you know? So I put it in, in the same way that one, you can be having a hungry day. Uh, and it's really interesting, especially with stress and some people are stressed out right now, it's depending how high the stress is, sometimes the stress response is you have a lowered appetite. Biologically, your body's getting ready to fight, flight, or freeze. It's not so convenient to be digesting. And so you might naturally have lower appetite. And then when that intense stress lets up, a day or two or maybe five days later, all of a sudden you're hungry and ravenous out of nowhere. You didn't do anything wrong. It's just a natural compensatory response. And what, what I find happen is when that goes on, I don't usually have my patients registering anxiety. They don't say, ooh, Evelyn, I'm concerned because I wasn't quite eating enough. <laughs> It's never like that. And because it doesn't register as this anxiety, and then they suddenly get this hunger, the assumption is I did something wrong, as opposed to, no, your body's really, really working. And maybe I need to have something especially satisfying right now. You know, I've had patients who've had like a lovely meal, like at lunch, like you were saying, and then they get hungry three hours later and think there's something wrong with them. And sometimes we'll look, I'll put on my nutritionist hat and deconstruct the meal. It's like, oh, it's a lovely meal, but it's pretty light, you know? <laughs> You're, look how smart your body is. You might have been feeling really full from the volume. Let's say if you had a nice salad, but there weren't much carbs there, your body could be like, dude, where's carbs? Where's carbs? Where's carbs? <laughs> <laughs> and it comes up as hunger, comes up as cravings in all different types of ways. So one of the things is to befriend and reframe these, these cues as normal. It's not a symptom. It's a cue, you know? Yes, it's not. Yeah, I love that. It's, it's part of the knowing. Have you read, yeah. um, slightly off tangent, have you read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed? I sure did. It was awesome. Did you love how she referred to your body's knowing? And I yes. immediately was like, that's being intuitive that is exactly what that is it's your body's wisdom and knowing and the way she framed it in that book 
I just loved it because I felt it felt like there were extra layers to how we she really talks about for people listening she really kind of talks about how we kind of are very much used to trusting things outside ourselves to make decisions for ourselves which is essentially what diet culture does when we think about food and exercise right so I really love the way how she brought us in to not only trust ourselves around whether it's you know issue big issues in your like relationships and parenting and all those things. But I really felt that all that stuff applied to the wisdom and knowing that you kind of amass as you go on the journey, as you say, because I feel like it's almost like you keep this mental notebook of all the different things that your body does. And you kind of write a little bit down and a, another little thing a few weeks later happens and you're like, ah, oh, this, this starts to make sense. I'm getting a bigger picture of what my body needs and how my body responds. And I felt like that is that inner knowing. Absolutely. I mean, she did a great job of talking about that, how we outsource and then we mm-hmm. conform to the norm. And one of the takeaways I have from that book, because, you know, it's funny, anything I read, I'm always doing it from the lens of what I do. And I was <laughs> thinking, wow. And think about people who are really stuck in diet culture. It puts on another connecting and knowing. I think it's one of the reasons why that when people really heal their relationship with food, mind, and body, we get unsolicited DMs and emails like, oh my God, it changed my life. And I always make sure I said, you know what? You changed your life. You might've read the book. We might've given you the map, but you took the action. Mm-hmm. You had the courage, but I think it becomes life changing because it transfers over to other areas. As you start trusting your body, you start judging your uh, your knowingness, your your wisdom, your your decisions. And if we can get even deeper at the at the mechanism behind this and this is i'm going to geek out a little bit if you don't mind i'm, I'm the geek Please on the do. team you know one of the the the, the basis of operation of intuitive eating is something called interceptive awareness and that's our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise within the body and it's like oh no big deal like wait a minute let me let me, let me tell you some more <laughs> yes it includes hunger and fullness yes it's being able to feel but every emotion has a physical sensation and so what that means then this is our special body language it's our inner gps and so if we listen we have powerful powerful messaging on how to get both our biological needs met and our psychological needs met conversely if you're at war with your body if you hate your body uh are you going to listen to the messenger of the body you know, let alone respond. It's one thing to listen. That's important. But then can we respond in a timely, in a timely manner? And I, I just think it's incredible. And one of the, the key researchers, the scientists that really put interceptive awareness on the map, his name is A.D. Craig. And he's, <laughs> he wrote a simple book that wasn't so simple because uh, he didn't want to write a textbook. And he talks about, through all these complex diagrams, how in the process of interceptive awareness, you need to be present because physical sensation is happening right now in this moment, not in the past, not in the future. What you experience as sensation is happening right now. And he goes on to say, this is actually the global emotional moment because it's taking in everything that's happening right now. And when we do that, it's connecting us to our human sentient beingness. And I go, wow, that is profound, you know? Mm -hmm. But when we're trying to conform to diet culture, we're cutting all that off from ourselves. And one of the, you know, the metaphors that Glennon was using in her book was the cheetah. You know how cheetahs run fast, they're free, and they're beautiful. And I'm also thinking, and cheetahs don't diet, you know? Yeah, 
Exactly. <laughs> and they listen to their bodies. And so for anyone listening, there might be a party right now that says, oh my God, this, this is what I want. And yet I'm terrified. That's really common to want both things, to feel afraid to move forward and also to want something like this in terms of freedom. And so part of what we do in this process is we're healing and we're, and we're healing and repairing the trust that got disrupted every time you dieted, every time you honor your hunger, you're repairing trust, you're building trust with every bite of food. And then there's this beautiful ebb and flow that ends up happening. So it's almost like the body needs to trust you that you're going to take care of it. And if you're not consistently kind to it, you know, in terms of nourishing it, moving it around a bit as it feels good, resting your body, you're not going to get consistent feedback. Why is your body going to be nice to you if you're mean to it? <laughs> you know, and it sounds silly almost, but when I look at it, it's, it's really kind of profound. How are you going to get consistent hunger and, and satiety cues if you're inconsistently feeding yourself? You know, if you're going for a long time without eating for a variety of reasons, when that hunger finally appears, it's going to be more of that raging roar, that primal hunger, like, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to eat you too. <laughs> you know, it's that... I love that term hangry. It all comes together yes. in that moment. And, and I say the reason it's so intense, even though it's upsetting for the individual, is it's part of our survival mechanism. Your little cells don't know that skipping a meal or restricting your eating was intentional. All your little cells know is like, oh my God, she's trying to kill me. She's trying to kill me again. We got to get her attention. We got to get a craving up there. You know, and there's this beautiful cascade of things that happen on a cellular level that also interface with our mind on a psychological level, and we get these powerful pulls to eat because it's about our survival. No differently than if we were to voluntarily hold our breath at some point, our body would pass out so that we could start breathing again on its own, you know? So I think it's just really profound. And that's why I get so concerned about all the fear mongering that's in, in diet culture and that it keeps people from wanting to trust their bodies. You know, but it's possible. The healing is possible. No longer, no matter how long you've been dieting, I will say it takes a little longer if you've been dieting since you were a little kid, um, you know, because you were taught at a very young age, you can't trust your body, you can't trust your appetite. That's powerful, powerful messaging, but healing is possible. Liberation is possible, you know? I think that's so exciting. And, and I think probably slightly terrifying if you're hearing that for the first time and thinking oh, like terrifying <laughs> because I think what diet culture does so well is it's a gaslighter it makes you think you can't yes. trust yourself it absolutely yes. it tells you that you don't know yourself and I think that's why yes. personal trainers or dietitians come in as the expert and you know, telling you, giving you a meal plan to follow, giving you a workout plan to follow. And, you know, if you just do what I tell you to do, you'll be fine, which is essentially what diet culture is, right? And that's yeah. kind of it in a human form. And I just love, like you said earlier on, that this is about making you the boss of you. This is about making right. you back in charge and making those decisions. And as you said, that when you start making decisions that you want to make around food and exercise you then make those decisions in other areas of your life and it it seeps out into how you feel you deserve to be treated in a relationship exactly. or with your friendships and how you show up at work and it's hugely empowering to take it? back it's hugely empowering so it's it's empowering and the other thing 
and my patients usually love this when I say this, is in this empowerment, you're connecting to your authentic truth mm. over and over again. Just to, if you just think about the basics of hunger, fullness, and satisfaction, especially satisfaction, only you know what that feels like. And when you get that clarity from your own direct experience, you will get to the point where you've got these deep roots, like a big majestic redwood tree. Um, that the storms and the wind of diet culture can blow all around you. Your leaves might get flared, but you're deeply rooted and it won't affect you anymore. In the beginning, it affects you greatly because it teaches you the, the distrust, but this authenticity that happens, I'll tell you that the things I hear just blow me away in terms of people's lives becoming more deeper and meaningful because they're present. You know, if you're, if you're going out with friends for a really good time to celebrate a momentous, momentous occasion and you go out to a restaurant, but you in the back of your mind, you're calculating macros, you're figuring out what you can or can't do. Your body's there, but your mind is not and that disrupts relationships too and people can't put their hand on it it's like you're there but you're not there and so when you come back to your home and that is your body you know, there's a powerful thing that happens with us, but it takes time, it takes healing. And, you know, right now with, with diet culture being such uh, the, 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 the mover of, of fat phobia and weight stigma, it's a scary idea for a lot of people. And now as we start looking at, I, I love this book by uh, Sabrina, um, Sabrina Strings. We mentioned mm -hmm. it in our book, we didn't really unpack it, but it's called Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Roots of Fat Phobia. If we can recognize this has been here before us a long, long time ago, tied up into racism before healthcare even got involved. Um, it, there's something very profound about that. And it's one of my biggest frustrations today. And that is 25 years ago when we were saying reject the diet mentality, we were talking about the internalized um, rules that you get from the weight loss industry, the fitness industry, the beauty industry. And that's a lot, by the way. I don't want to minimize that. But what's happened now, especially in the United States, but it's worldwide, is that healthcare is, is part of diet culture. Back in 2013, when the American Medical Association voted that, quote, air quotes, obesity is a disease, they out there, let me, let me give you a little backstory. It's important, actually, detail. Their scientific committee was asked the question, is weight a disease, basically? They looked at all the research and said, no, there's not enough data to support that. And the AMA said, we don't like that answer. We're going to vote. And that's when this became political. And that's when, especially in the United mm -hmm. States, we started seeing weight-centric healthcare really become profound. So I get patients that come in <clears throat> who are now are feeling pressure from their doctors, or they don't want to go see their doctor because they don't want to have that, less, that, that lecture. And the thing that kills me is that if Intentional weight loss was a medication. It would never, ever be approved for a medication, nor would any uh, good doctor be prescribing it with the track record that it has, that, well, maybe just 5%, it might work, uh, but the odds are it's going to cause the opposite thing that we're trying to do. Why, why would you prescribe something that's going to actually cause you know, bigger harm. And one of the things that I look at, because I like to also pay attention to our humanity. I've, I've met amazing doctors over the years who really do care about their, their patients and they're busy and white science is complex. And so what they do is they follow the recommendations of their organizations, which are focused on weight policy. And what this reminds me of something, we actually put it in the book, is the Simmelweis reflex. And that's a phenomenon named after Dr. Simmelweis, who discovered that if you wash your hands, you won't kill patients. 
patients. And at the time, I think this was in the, oh my God, I'm getting my years wrong. But I think it was like in the 1600s, uh, he was laughed out of medicine. They said, that's, that's preposterous. We're gentlemen. We don't kill our patients and we don't need to wash our hands. And now we know with the pandemic, of course we wash <laughs> our hands and all that. And then subsequently, you know, Louis Pasteur came along with germ theory saying, yeah, these invisible things can actually kill you. And so the Simovitz reflex is named after him to, to reflect that when new information and new data come along that challenge the popular paradigm, it's often met with incredulity and, and discounted. We also saw that with, um, with ulcers. You know, it used to be, oh, it's your lifestyle. You're creating the, your, your ulcer. And people used to have part of their stomachs removed because of bleeding ulcers. And then these two doctors discovered, no, it's a bacteria that causes this. And they were also uh, not given very much uh, serious um, they weren't giving, well, they were also met with the incredulity with the, with the medical elite. And it wasn't until one of the doctors infected himself with the H. pylori and gave himself an ulcer that they, they finally got taken seriously. And fast forward, they get the medical, uh, the Nobel Prize for medicine for this discovery. But in the mm. beginning, it was met with incredulity, you know. So I think we're seeing the same kind of thing with, with, uh, with, with, with weight centricism. And, you know, <laughs> sometimes I'll say to some of the doctors I know, did you really get into medicine and have all that education so you can be a mouthpiece for Weight Watchers, you know, I mean, really? And it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's infuriating. So what I, the reason I'm bringing this up, one, it's in the book, but the other thing is, it's understandable that when and they say, I want to lose weight and I want to become an intuitive eater. Why can't I do both? You know, so they're feeling the pressure from culture. They're feeling it from, from healthcare. Um, and, and the problem and the challenge is, is that when you're focusing on something like weight that takes you into the external mode, uh, as opposed to intuitive eating is inside job. How am I feeling? Is this satisfying? Uh, what's my hunger? And all those kinds of things. And we're not, you know, against weight loss if it happens, but what we really keep going back to, and for anyone listening, if they've been confused with the co-opting, the first principle of, of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality. It's This is all about healing your relationship with food. And some people can their weight can stay the same. Some people will gain weight. Some people will lose weight. And we can't look at the size of someone's body and, and say whether or not they're healthy, whether or not they're an intuitive eater. And so we really have to dismantling fat phobia and weight stigma, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a really common question I get about this stuff. Like, can I eat intuitively? Can I exercise intuitively and still want to lose weight? Can I can I do it and do it to lose weight? And I would just love a really, even just a clear, well, I don't know if there is a yes, no, cause I don't, <laughs> I don't think there is, but I just would just love to hear some like, yeah, just directly some thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, so the first thing I, I do is I affirm, I say, it's really understandable. You have that, that desire. It's in our culture. It's, we don't want anyone to feel shame because of that. But the problem is when you put the focus on weight loss, you take it off of your experience and then you start judging how you're doing based on an external number. And the thing I want to really, really stress, and this is the part that, that doesn't get out there enough is that the process of intentional weight loss through food restriction causes harm. It causes harm. Uh, we look at rebound weight gain and sometimes more than the rebound, more than what you've lost. And when you start looking at the fact that eating disorders have doubled in the last time period in which they were looked at, this is a study published last year, it's really, really profound. And so what do you need in order to let this go? The body of research is really quite 
profound. And that's how we have to look at the social structures that keep this uh, weight stigma alive. Because sometimes what people are asking is, I want to be able to go into the grocery store and not get heckled. I want to go onto an airplane and not worry if the seatbelt is going to fit me. And so I've had conversations with fat activists who'll say to me, you know, Evelyn, intuitive eating on the one hand is, is awesome. And if someone is in a straight body, meaning that you can straight size that you can fit into clothes in a, in a regular store, uh, and they make peace with food and they make peace with their body. They go out into culture and they're fine. There's no hostility. But somebody in a large body who makes peace with their body, makes peace with eating, they go out into, into the culture and it's hostile and they don't mm -hmm. feel safe. And we have to acknowledge that the work is not done. And one of the things we're looking at, intuitive eating is an awesome tool. But what do we do to help dismantle this system? It's a complex question I don't have an answer for, but we need to look at that, you know? Yes, like, you know, it doesn't exist inside a vacuum, this work, and no. it has to be in the context of how we live our lives. And I think this is only demonstrated, I think, in a really simple demonstration, just to explain that that kind of difference is, you know, when I, you know, I recently posted a picture, I had made a pizza, and I oh. posted a picture of me having this homemade pizza. And I was talking about my experience of intuitive eating. And in the same 24 hours, a... um a plus size blogger had posted a picture about them healing their relationship with food and they had like a homemade bowl of pasta. I got praise and support and, you know, thank you so much. Like, you know, this, thank you for sharing this. And this other person received huge amounts of abuse, um, uh. trolling and that double standard is, is what, is what the fat activists are talking about the way yeah. that it is much more acceptable for me to, eat whatever I want and, you know, see all foods in a neutral way and, you know, say that aren't good and bad foods and, you know, enjoy my pizza and, and enjoy my broccoli. Yeah. Those that's fine. But I think, um, we're living in a culture that demonizes those same behaviors in someone in a larger body. And you're right. That is what we have to keep talking about, keep pushing against. And, you know, I always encourage if anyone's listening, if you see those people being trolled in there, comments go in there with some love support them and you know um you know if you can take on the um the the energy to to kind of retort to these people who are i just think i find it really hard to see people who you know i think diet culture makes us spend so much of our time and energy and money and so much of our life thinking about being smaller and that being thin is always the ultimate goal and when people reject that i think people find that really hard to confront because it's very confronting to think that someone may be um be completely happy within themselves and not always be focused on having to be smaller in the way that diet culture has told us that that's what we should all be aiming for. Absolutely. Um, and that body diversity size mm. exists. We mm. need to have room for that, you know, and, and we need to look at our privileges. And I, I saw a post and I'm, I'm escaping the name. Oh my gosh. But he made this great post. 
ignorance is a privilege. I go, oh my God, isn't that the truth? If you haven't have to face some of these types of oppressive systems, uh, it, it might be because you have the privilege of ignorance when you haven't had to know this in terms of your own survival and safety. So I think there's things we all need to be be looking at in that in that perspective, that everybody has a right to dignity and respect, period, regardless of size, race, gender, all of these kinds of things, abilities and neurodiversity and all those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and we've kind of touched on a few, few of those FAQs. And I think, um, I think it would be nice to kind of just maybe bust a few myths around intuitive eating. Cause I think, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of fear about it. Um, I think one of the biggest feedback I get, and I think it actually kind of relates to this topic, um, is the fear of weight gain that comes with seemingly relinquishing control around food. And mm-hmm. um, the biggest fear is, you know, but but if I intuitively, I will gain weight. And I think that kind of relates to our what we were just talking about. And I would just love to hear, you know, how you um, kind of counsel someone through that. Yeah, I, I do it in many, many, many different ways. You know, I mean, we can start with the, the big cultural thing, as we were just describing, in terms of the culture is, is creating this. But when, when I, if I want to make an impact working with one person, you know, I will say, how has this pursuit of trying to change your body or the fear of your body changing, how's that impacting your quality of life? What is this doing in your relationships? Have you turned down, you know, engagements and opportunities uh, because you weren't sure about the food and then the impact on your body? And you're, therefore you're not you're not living and that's the thing we need to start looking at that life is happening now and a beautiful thing happens when we stop taking the focus on trying to shrink your body that takes up a lot of energy and bandwidth i have had oh my god I've had feedbacks from artists and actors that their passion came back because when you're constantly focusing on shrinking your body, there's an, there's an emotional cost to it. There's an energetic cost to it. And then when you're not getting enough to eat, uh, it's hard to emote, especially if you're in a creative aspect. So what I start looking about at is what what are the costs right now to you about pursuing this shrinking of your body? you know, and and that's a hard one. And for a lot of people, we get into the place of grieving, grieving the fantasy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've had, I've had people get angry and let's say, you know, it's not like I was trying to be model thin. I just wanted to be able to you know, go, go to the store with my, my girlfriends and, and shop in the same size as they're shopping. And, and so they perceive that as a realistic goal. And what we're, what we're talking about is our, our, our biology. And so we have to look at the, the time spent, uh, the money spent, so many things, and there's a grieving process that ends up happening. And then we look underneath that, what's the root of all of this? Why aren't you good enough as a human right now? just the way you are, that your body is a sacred place. It's your home for the rest of your life. It's the container of your consciousness, your spirit, your soul, whatever term that you you like to connect with. And we start looking at that, that you're more than a body. And one of the things I like looking at too is what are some other things about you that you love or like or value about yourself that have nothing to do with your size or your appearance? Maybe it has to do with the skill. Maybe it's a characteristic. Maybe 
maybe it's a, a value and, and so on. And the other thing I also do in these conversations, and keep in mind, I think it's harder for an individual to have that conversation with an author of a book, you know what I mean? And so what I like to say is we will need to talk, we'll talk about this as much as you need to, because this is not just an intellectual unlearning. There is unlearning that happens, but then there's the deconstruction and the uprooting of this belief system and this value system that probably predates before you were born. If you just start looking at your family, you know, how were bodies treated in your family? Were they gossiped about behind your back? Um, and they don't have to be directed at you, but you hear it and you absorb it and it becomes something that, that you I identify with. And so we need to be looking at these things and that what would you be spending your energy and time on if, if you weren't spending so much time on this exhaustive, fruitless pursuit of shrinking your body, you know? I have to say from a personal perspective, I did gain weight eating intuitively because I was, I think my body was, you know, I was trying to make my body fit a mold that it was never naturally intended to fit. And mm. I always like to think of, you know, and the days when maybe I am still grieving that past self and that, yeah. that the, the way that person was treated and the way, you know, um, the way I maybe sometimes viewed myself, I have to think about what did I gain alongside the weight. Yeah. And for me, that has been that has been my, my headspace. And I say that in an intellectual ah. manner, in a kind of, um, in a way that means I am more present in, in my relationship, in my friendships, in my work. Ah. I wrote a book and I never thought I would ever write a book ever, ah. but I had it in me because I was fed. I was fed ah. for the first time, you know, in years. And I was able to pursue a passion that I don't think I would have done if I was hungry. And I don't think Such I would have done if point. I was pushing my, pushing my weight down. And, and to me, that has been so much more worth it than fitting a narrow ideal that I, I felt I had to live up to. So I always think about what I gained as well as, as well as the weight, the weight gave me freedom in so many senses, as you said, like, um, and also letting go of those, those standards, which you used to hold yourself to yeah. is so like it's the oppression, the biggest you exhale is the biggest exhale of like, I don't have to do this anymore. I don't have, yeah. I don't have to, I can do what I want to do. And that is huge. And I, it's I, freedom. it is, it absolutely. Um, I would love, we kind of touched on it before, but I would love to talk about things like sugar addiction and oh. food addiction because like one, um, it was a little while ago now, but I was with a friend and they said, and I considered them to be, I would never have considered them to be like, um, I said they were fairly intuitive. They're kind of a friend, you know, I'd never thought, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm worried about their relationship with food, but even just in passing, it was just very much like, Oh, I'm addicted to sugar. I open a bag of sweets and chocolate and I just, I just eat it all. I just eat it all. And I have to eat them all. And I just eat like three bags in a go. And it was from a guy and I just was really kind of like, ah, diet culture gets us all. Um, yeah, and that. I would love to hear your, yeah, your thoughts on, on the, the sugar addiction, because I think for so many people, this feels so real. 
Well, and that's actually, let's start with that point. And that is the experience is real. This mm-hmm. intensity, this feeling of not stopping, being able to stop eating. It's kind of like what you were describing earlier with that hunger when you're in that mm-hmm. primal hunger space. But now we add the psychology into it. So often what ends up happening when someone has that, that fraught relationship with sugar or dessert, what's really common after that, they make a vow, I'm never, ever, ever going to eat this again because I got to get my act together. And they really, really believe in that moment they're never going to have it again. And what that does, it puts into this pressure, well, I better get it now before, before I change my mind. This is my last opportunity. And they really, really believe that in the moment. And that creates that cycle. So the combination of if you're not getting enough to eat over exercising, and then you've got this belief that you can never, ever, ever have it. And then something disrupts that, that rule you have. And it's like, okay, I got to inhale. I'm never going to have it again. But the thing that really gets me, it's funny, I, I teach this now every time in my, my trainings. And usually when I'm giving some kind of talk around intuitive eating, because it always comes up, what about addiction? And it's one of my biggest concerns, and it's an example to me of diet culture. First of all, we should, when we talk about so-called food addiction, it should either be in quotations or saying so-called or saying that it's a theory. And I'll tell you, when it comes to sugar itself, where this comes from, it's a famous study out of Princeton where they took rats and they so-called made them addicted to sugar and their research went viral around the world. And I had the, the opportunity to actually debate one of those researchers last year in Los Angeles. And it was actually a very good conversation that we had. We completely dif- disagreed with each other, but respected <laughs> each other as human beings, I'm happy to say. And I said to her, I said, you know, I'm so fascinated by that model because to me, I'm not fascinated by those rats that couldn't stop eating sugar because you did something that we know can cause that kind of eating. You restricted their eating. We see this in dieters. We've seen this in starvation studies. And at the same time, your control rats had the same access to sugar and didn't lose control. And what they had was access to food. So to me, you're onto something very, very important. But when you start labeling something as addiction, it's going to treat, it's going to change how you treat it. And then in the eyes of a human being, it's going to treat how they view them himself as powerless over something. And so this has never, ever, ever been shown in a human, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, and even when it's been shown in rats, the part that's important to understand is it took food restriction to have this impact. I think we could make a good argument that food restriction, starvation, we've also seen this in famines and cultures. When you have that kind of food insecurity, that creates a uh, um, something in your brain where you're more food seeking and food is more rewarding for our survival. We see this across the board. So to me, this reinforces how restricting your eating messes you up in that that way. Mm -hmm. So now let's add to this, the Yale food addiction scale. And that one really, really gets under my skin because it comes from an Ivy League, you know, university in the United States, highly respected and the name. So you say Yale and you see food addiction, you think, oh my God, this is a thing. This is a thing. The first time the first original study came out in 2009, I remember reading it and thinking, how in the world do they get these Ivy League uh, kids and and get a 15% uh, incidence of food addiction? what the hell's going on? And I read the methodology and what they did is they took the diagnostic criteria for substance abuse and said, if we apply this to food, what kind of questionnaire could we ask? You know, that's all they did. And so it, it, it was perplexing me, perplexing me. And still I started looking at the data of one, the worldwide prevalence of dieting right now, worldwide prevalence of dieting is about 44%. Wow. 
Wow. And if you look at it from, oh, and then, and then here's what really happened. When I got a hold of the actual questions in the questionnaire, it's like, oh, they got an effect because they catching, they are catching something, but they're calling it the wrong thing, in my opinion. They are seeing the consequences of food restriction you know? Mm -hmm. And so that is what they're picking up. And so fast forward, this uh, scale has been updated uh, to, to match the new criteria for substance abuse. And a new study came out last year looking at this with binge eating disorder. And 90% of the people and there's been a lot of criticism on this model, but it's just a proxy for other things. It could be a proxy for trauma. It could be a proxy for food insecurity. It could be a proxy for a mood disorder. And what I will add, this is my opinion and my belief, it's a proxy for dieting. That's what they're picking up. That's why they're getting this signal reproduced over and over again. But when you call it food addiction, that's fear mongering. And it takes away the agency and the power of the individual. That's the harm that that causes. And so what I say to the individual that has that belief, the feeling is real. And we've seen it happen in the classic Minnesota starvation study, I actually have got both volumes, it's like a thousand pages, and where they document, you know, subject 22, subject 30, lost control of eating when they were put on a semi-starvation diet, you know? So we know that this happens. I should say to, to our listeners, we went through the Minnesota starvation diet with Caroline Duna on a previous ah! episode. We really spoke, we really dug into it there. So I would recommend going back to listen to Caroline Duna talk about it because I I really loved her perspective on well, it because it's fascinating. And I got to tell you, I mean that that study has blown my mind to, since I was exposed to it in grad school. But it was only in the last few years I actually got the original study and started reading it. I wow. still haven't finished. But I'm going to tell you a word that they used in there that just got me. Mm. <laughs> and one of the subjects was complaining. He was so tired of people incessantly talking and focusing about food because that's what you do when you're not getting enough to eat. And he called it nutrition masturbation. He said, "I am so sick." <laughs> I, I've read this twice. I'm reading this scientific thing. What? And this is published in the late 40s, early 50s, you know? And I thought, wow, that's actually a good description because it's a form of self-absorption, you know? And I thought, mm. wow, that term even applies today with diet culture, you know? Oh, I've not had that take on it. I, that's yeah. interesting. That's well, in, think, their, in their volume. Yeah. Well, I think this kind of also, this kind of idea of being addicted to food also leads to us nicely to talking about um, emotional relationship with food. And I know oh. in the fourth edition of your book, um, that principle has evolved. I would love you to explain what the original, maybe what just the wording was of the original principle and then how um, emotions and food are interlinked. Oh, yeah, that's such a great question. And so um, the original principle was said, cope with your feelings without food. And fast forward, we did modify it. We put a lot of thought into it. And now, and I'll explain why in a second, is it's, it's coping with your feelings with kindness. And what we have seen over and over again is diet culture pathologizing any kind of emotional eating. We'd see that happen and, and that creates shame. And mm -hmm. so now if someone is engaged, let's just say in emotional, let's just say loss of control, eating. Now they're also having that event and then they're shaming themselves on the eating and that's a lot to unpack. And so one of the things that we really made clear is before you even call it emotional eating or whatever label, let's make sure you're nourishing your body because there's a phenomenon that happens. We've already talked about this, that when you're not getting enough to eat, you're going to be food seeking and you might have an emotion happening at the same time that you're eating. It doesn't mean it's emotional eating. It could be 
a natural compensatory response to the under eating. And so let's get you nourished. And then let's look at the fact that emotion and connection is tied into eating. It's normal. It's in our culture. It's how we connect. You know, I would hate for somebody not to celebrate their wedding or their birthday by saying, oh, oh, I can't eat that cake because I, I'm not precisely hungry, you know? Mm. And so this is acknowledging the role of food in our culture and to move away from the pathology of this. And yes, we need a lot of tools in our toolbox for coping, you know? And the more variety we have, the better. And for some people, especially when they're younger, the only thing they had access to was food as a coping mechanism. And I say, good for you. You found a way to self-soothe and cope or even numb if you needed to, you know? And yeah, maybe it doesn't feel good. We can find some ways, you know, some alternative to things, but to shame yourself on this, we need to let that go and maybe look at, maybe this is part of your survival story. You didn't turn to drugs. You didn't turn to these other things you could have been been doing. And so it's about removing the shame. And part of the other thing relatedly in this edition, you know, so Elise and I really updated it. We wanted to take a closer look at weight stigma and diet culture, baby led weaning. And we thought while we're there, let's take a fine tooth comb and just look at our wording. And we were really uh, surprised and, and wincing at some of our statements that we had written that were really weight centric. And so we have um, grown and evolved and uh, Based on our, our based on the research and other things that have that have come along, and we've decided we need to be transparent about this. You know that evolution is possible. So we're really pleased with how this came out, but there's still more work to be done. We're going to continue to grow and evolve. You know, and I think that's partly what's different to the kind of the weight focused approach, and whether that's in uh, medicine, dietetics, even in fitness, is this somewhat refusal to evolve. And this, you know, there's this one way that we do it and that's what it is. And I think what's wonderful about um, intuitive eating as an approach is that it, you're open to learning. You're always learning, you're always growing and that applies to the work. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's very human response to this approach. And sometimes I feel science in those senses feels like it lacks that humanness you know that that um that willing to be wrong and the desire to try and make it right and i think that's lacking well you're right well and what's actually what's really needed is we need more humility we need intellectual Mm. humility and just because you have a phd in one area doesn't mean that now you're an expert in another area you might not know all the missing confounders when you look at all the research going on on so-called weight studies associating weight with health there's huge missing confounders like loneliness is a huge public health issue social determinants of health including racism is a huge public health Mm -hmm. issue and those aren't factored in And so there's a lot of things we need to be looking at. Like, for example, there's a famous um, study in the United States called the the Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this is when they looked at adults and gave them this survey to see if they had one of 10 adverse experiences as kids. So it could be something like a parent having a substance abuse, a parent being incarcerated, experiencing divorce, or they... 
witnessing or being emotional or physical abuse. There's 10. So what they found, it was a huge study, that if an adult suffered six out of those 10, that's going to cut off 20 years of their life on average. Wow. They would live to 60 versus 80. And so most of this epidemiological research looking at weight and health don't look at these other very important confounders. Mm -hmm. And it's recognizing there's more to health than just what we eat. Body size is not health. And so we need this uh, humility in our research. We need to move away from one of my, my scientist uh, mentors. He's now retired. I think he's like 95. He called <laughs> it science silo mentality, that you're operating in silos of your expertise, but we need to start integrating and looking at these kinds of things. So we need intellectual humility. We need cultural humility. We need lived here, uh, lived experience humility. We just need to have more humility, period. You know, and, 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 and like you said, I completely agree that the willingness to, to own the fact that we can be wrong about something. Mm. Okay, that makes you human, but that let's now repair this and do and do better. You know, I think it's also exciting. And I, I am also, uh, I think one of the things I want to talk about was the rise in popularity of what it seems in intuitive eating, because I yeah. think social media has played such a huge role in you know spreading this message i came to this work through social media oh I, no kidding yeah i, I yeah i saw ah. people posting the book i saw people talking about it um i really respect the work of laura thomas and she's you oh, know yeah. down the road from me and so i yeah i was like oh everyone's talking about this thing this keeps popping up i'm intrigued and i could certainly relate to the disordered relationship with food and i will always say that discovering intuitive eating was like the final piece in the puzzle. But uh, I, I personally think one of the reasons that we're seeing um, more interest in intuitive eating, and sadly, I think it's getting diluted and confused along the way, which is yeah, what yeah, happens when things grow, um, is largely thanks to, um, you know, finding, um, you know, dietitians and therapists and people online who are doing this work and applying it and making it accessible in a way that um and making people aware that it's an option i think that's yes. huge it is huge and it's i'll tell you what it's so exciting to see this growing and you know we have almost 1100 health professionals around the world in 24 countries trained in our our method trained and certified and now we're actually putting a little more emphasis on that because like you said it's being co-opted mm -hmm. uh there are people who claim that they're an intuitive eating coach when they're using it in ways it's like oh no 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 <laughs> don't call it intuitive eating you're gonna mess somebody up you know, mm. there was somebody uh, in the uh, social media space on Instagram who declared she was an, an intuitive eating expert and uh, an expert in, in health at every size and posted a before and after picture. And it's like, and I, I, the only reason I found out someone tagged me in somebody who was in a, a larger body and said, this is causing harm. I don't think the intuitive eater um, creators of this would agree with your post. And I looked like, oh my God, this is causing harm, you know? And so she had a metamorphosis. There was no doubt in her life had an eating disorder. And as a result, um, had amazing transformation. But when you look at a before and after picture, you're using the tools of diet culture. When you look at the picture, it says, oh, this is what intuitive eating looks like and it's reinforcing a certain kind of body. And I, and I mentioned to her, so I made a comment on the post and I said, you know, we were all, when I say we in, in healthcare, 
uh, we were indoctrinated in, in diet culture. That's how Elise and I got started. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you offline. I think sometimes social media is a hard place to get mm -hmm. called in. And I offered that. And instead, she just doubled down. Well, I got a PhD. And it's just like, oh, it's so sad. You know, so I, I get concerned about this when it's being misused. And so one of the myths around intuitive eating or one of the things I like to help people do is to know how to spot fake intuitive eating. Please so, let's share the tips. Yeah. So basically, if any program is claiming intuitive eating and having you count food, weigh food, measure food, measure your body, weigh your body, count macros, metrics, all those kinds of stuff. That is not intuitive eating. That is disconnection from your body. And we have to remember the first uh, principle of intuitive eating is reject the diet mentality in all of its uh, forms. And diet culture is just really sneaky. So I've had people think that they were doing intuitive eating when they're doing some diets. That's a diet, you know? So I, I, I don't... Um, wish ill of anybody who's fallen into that trap, people who are using our work intentionally and misusing that. And what I say is, you know what, you might have good intentions, but you're causing harm. Uh, come learn how to do it, you know, in a way that that is not going to be causing harm, you know. And yeah, like I said, discovering intuitive eating for a long time, I thought intuitive eating was um, when you didn't, track food because mm -hmm. I had because I had counted macros and things uh. for so long but when people in the fitness space spoke about eating intuitively they meant they would have intuitive days essentially when they just didn't count calories and Oh, yeah, I've seen food. that. A cheat day, basically. A cheat you day, know? but it's like, a, you know, an, it's in being an intuitive day. So for a very long time, I said, yeah, I eat intuitively. But I, and, you know, as you said before, I wasn't on a formal diet. I didn't even have a label necessarily for how I ate. But the amount mm. of food rules I had, that was what was really interesting was the, yes. the level of, you know, whether, you know, I'm only allowed half a banana and, um, you know, I... I can, I'm not allowed too many egg whites and I'm only allowed a certain amount of avocado and, you know, all this monitoring and yeah. these little rules I had. So I was never, I wasn't even necessarily intentionally trying to lose weight and I was still dieting because I had the rules and it's though it's, that's what's sneaky about in, in yes. um, diet cultures because we do, talk, you know, say about eating for weight loss is dieting, but also it's, it's eating to, um with the rules um even yeah. if it's just to kind of like maintain that body size or whatever if you're having to constantly monitor your food and think about it that's still dieting well, that's such a good point. That's a really a very important point that you might not be following anything official, but if your mind is on the diet and preoccupied with the rules and you don't even you don't even know how how they got there. You know, mm. they get collected along the way yep. with Instagram posts, previous plans you've been on. And, you know, we can add, throw into that mix this idea of so-called clean eating and orthorexia. It's like, oh, I don't care about my weight. I'm just, you know, I really care about my health. And we start looking at, oh, okay. That was me. Well, well, good for you for owning that because that, that helps other people take a look at that. Mm -hmm. And when it's done with such rigidity, there's nothing wrong with having preferences, but when it's done with such rigidity that in it ends up paradoxically causing you not to be healthy, mm -hmm. 
that becomes really problematic, you know. Well, as you- Evelyn, I saw you before we started this call today. I'm going on holiday tomorrow. And this holiday is a bit of an annual reminder of my relationship with food because the first year I went on this holiday, I was dieting and I made my food and I ate out of Tupperware boxes and I ate separate <gasps> food to everyone else on this holiday. Oh. Um, and every year I go back and it's kind of like a marker of like where I'm at with food because, you know, it's lots of group family meals. We do lots of home cooking. Mm. Um, you don't have, you can't choose what you're eating. What's on the menu is what's on the menu. And every year I go back, things are a little bit easier, but I also noticed that there's still a few little rules I have to let go of, or there's still a little thing I had to, or like, oh, why am I scared of having pasta and garlic bread? Like, why am I scared of those uh. two things together? And you know, I, I think now I'm probably at my most free from these things, but it's mm-hmm. very interesting to kind of have those thoughts. And, and, you know, even on previous times when I wasn't putting my food in Tupperware, even on subsequent holidays, I was still had my little food rules and had to make my own meals a certain way. So it wasn't, you know, I didn't discover intuitive eating until a bit later on of of already kind of steering away from my own obsession really, Mm -hmm. but it takes time. It takes years. And you know, this is like, I've been going for like six years and each time I'm still learning something about myself. So I think, you know, knowing, yeah, knowing that it takes time and it's, and it's like you said, it's a journey and a process and a, and a constant reflection really of like, Oh, why do I, why do I think that about that? Where did that rule come from? Huh, I've absorbed that I shouldn't eat after this time or I just think it's really it's interesting like that. that it can be yeah it's it's not necessarily so black and white and cut cut and dry exactly and actually I love the way you're describing it because what you're describing is is coming in with some open curiosity non-judgmental curiosity well that's interesting I'm I'm having I'm having a fear about this you know and I've I've also worked with people who are really on the intuitive eating path and then they get some guilt or sometimes even shame because oh well no I I had this rule or I had this wish about my body it's like that doesn't make you not an intuitive eater that makes you human Mm -hmm. you know and let's take a look at it and thoughts are thoughts is when you act on them they become more problematic but if you can cultivate this non-judgmental curiosity, like, oh, I wonder where that came from. And, maybe, and it, you don't even have to know where it came from, but like, oh, that's interesting. That's still here with me. Huh. I wonder what it'd be like to have some garlic bread with my pasta. I wonder if that mm-hmm. sounds good. Does it feel good? Well, I, well, I feel scared. Well, I feel more satisfied. And then you find out and you get to see. And then the more you keep challenging those shackles of rules, the more freedom that there's there. And I want to stress, there's nothing wrong with having preferences, but when they become rigid and they dictate your life and your vacation, we need to take a look at all those things, but nothing wrong with having preferences, you know? I would love to, because I'm conscious of time, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on gentle nutrition, because I think the other misconception around intuitive eating is that you're just eating donuts and um, (coughs) fries and burgers, and we don't eat vegetables, we don't have, um, you know, we don't think about our nutrition. It's a free-for-all, you eat whatever you want, and I would love to know how, how, how you apply gentle nutrition and when it's appropriate. Yeah, and you know, let me, I would say something. When I first got onto Instagram, I've only been on now for a year and a half. I went very unwillingly and then I fell in love with it. Um, and when I looked at the hashtag intuitive eating and I just saw all of these cupcakes and donuts, like it was a free for all. I thought, oh, now I see where people are getting this perception. I also understand it. it's very exciting to have this freedom with food. So you're going to write about that and not the gentle nutrition because that's like, eh, that's not so exciting. So one of the things I like to stress is, is 
you know, intuitive eating is a dynamic integrative process of, you know, rational mind, thought, and our, and our body. And it also includes our, our emotion. And one of these principles does include nutrition. And we can't take one or two principles and cherry pick them and call, and call that intuitive eating. And so one of the things I like to say is that diet culture doesn't get to own salad. So I've had patients who've had what I call veggie trauma. When they get where they've had the freedom with food and now they want to start eating some more vegetables and they want to know if it's okay and I'll ask what's what's the what's the fear behind this question and part of the fear is that, oh my god I that's what I used to do in diet culture so then what I look at is what is the intention behind the behavior mm-hmm. and usually at this point it's like you know what I want to feel good I feel in the mood of something crispier now it's summertime and I want something colder more refreshing and these are lovely fine things you know and so i understand that one and you go down the rabbit hole so one of the things i like to say is an intuitive eater can eat a salad for a meal or a donut and not have to explain or apologize it goes both ways and so one of the things i also caution with nutrition and maybe that's why it always gets so left out in the discussions of intuitive eating it's important if you don't feel ready to take a pause on that part. We don't rush through any of this. If you're not ready and if it's triggering, it's okay to wait. But ultimately, when you do get ready for this part, you get to ask, actually all along the way, I'd want you to be asking, not just, you know, is something satisfied, but how do I want to feel when I finish? You know, mm-hmm. and I've had patients, one of my classic examples, they start experimenting with donuts and they love it. And then they love having them for breakfast. And then I get the you know, would it be okay if I, if I went back to some oatmeal and fruit or something like that? And I said, yeah, but why the question? And, and, and then they'll truly say from their direct experience that, you know, I love the taste of the donuts, but I don't like the physical feeling as a meal. And so now this is not coming from a rule, this is coming for how they feel. And, and I'll say, yeah, that makes complete, complete sense. So it's being able to include these types of things. It's also recognizing that we don't get into a nutrient deficiency or a disease state based on one thing that you ate on one day one meal one day one snack one week doesn't make or break your health or your eating and it's this recognition that it includes more things and it includes just a variety of things and so what I found when people have been really chained to diet culture there's also an aversion that can happen where people stop liking vegetables uh, because they associate it with all these food plans they've been on and sometimes they feel really pissed off about that it's like I don't even like them now. And yet there's part of me that wants to because I know they're healthy and there's, there's truth to that. So then my question is, well, what would be a way that you can enjoy them, those that would enjoy um, and prepare them that might taste good and might be satisfying? Maybe it means having real salad dressing on your salad and throwing in some croutons for texture or something like that. So what if we focused on the taste experience, you know? And if you've got the means and the privilege and you don't feel so creative in the kitchen, you know, you could go out and experience appetizers and see what really tastes good that then might be worth your while in terms of trying to make it in the kitchen and so on. So that's what that's about. I often find I spend more time on deconstructing nutrition, but usually when we're doing the honor gentle nutrition, we're talking about what, what foods can you add into your, your pattern of eating? In other words, and let's look at like three days, not, not, not just this exact day to get a sense of what you're, what you're doing. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think, is it also a sense, because like, I think I apply gentle nutrition in the sense of, you know, I've got a busy day ahead. What's going to be the most filling breakfast Mm. for me to keep me going I know I'm going to need some protein in there some fats and some carbohydrates in there but I like all those things and I'm going to have the ones that I like 
and just well, yep. you know thinking about things in that sense but not getting too caught up in it no and so we call it call it a couple of things is one is nourishment as self-care and sometimes when you're having a crazy busy day you might not have uh all the time to to eat and there's nothing wrong with meal prepping when the intention is taking care of your of your mm. body and you might only have a lunch break at at 12 o'clock and you're not precisely hungry at 12 but that's your only opportunity to eat while you're working and it's totally totally fine and one of the things you're also talking about is body food choice congruence and that's a term that tracy tilka created that describes of a person's direct experience of knowing how food feels in your body. And that sounds so basic, like, well, of course I know what food feels like. But when you start looking at sneaky diet culture, and if you have been on the path of trying to fake out your hunger or fake out your fullness, it gets confusing. So here's a classic example. Let's take someone who might have like a big volume of vegetables. Let's call it a salad for lunch with iced tea because they're on some kind of food plan. And they'll say, I feel really full. They might even say, I'm satisfied but then they're hungry an hour or two hours later. And my question is, is that ultimately satisfying and sustaining for you? Only you can answer that question. So it's looking at nutrition with the connection to your body and it's doing it without shame and it's doing it without putting any moral value or elitism on your eating. It also can be a component of connecting with your culture and your, and your heritage and foods, you know? Evelyn, I think we've definitely run out of time and it's been an absolute honor to chat with you and chat through everything. I feel like we could do this all again. So I may well ask you back for a part two in the future. I would be thrilled to do that because I I can talk nonstop about this. (laughs) I can listen to you talk nonstop about it. So it's great. Thank you. Um, I would love you to tell people where they can get the fourth edition of Intuitive Eating. Well, you can get the fourth edition anywhere you can find books generally. So it could be online at Amazon, independent bookstores, Barnes and Nobles, for example, or some other, that's not independent, but it's a chain in, in the United States. I also know it's in the UK. You also can get it off our, our website as well. Did I see in the US that it's in Walmart or Target or one of those places? It was in Target. I found out from a fall. I was, that's the first time I've been in Target. I was so excited. It's like, oh my God. And it was so sweet. Someone posted, I saw my friends in Target. I saw my friends. And I think, why are they tagging me in this? (laughs) And then the friends, it was Elise and Evelyn. And they picked up. But I think that is such such testament to how mainstream intuitive eating is becoming and that's so exciting yeah, it is so incredibly ex- exciting gives me so great exciting. hope actually yeah. yeah um that someone might pick that up as well as a book and memo eventually it will they'll find it hopefully yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and Evelyn, where can people find you? You mentioned social media. Yeah, so I'm most active on Instagram, so you can find me at Evelyn Tribley. They're also the intuitiveeating.org uh, website. We also, oh, I should mention this, the Intuitive Eating Online Community. It's a free peer-to-peer support group. We have about 20,000 people. So this is a way you can access intuitive eating principles and get into some conversation free of, of diet culture, and it doesn't cost anything. That was something we were thrilled to do. You just need to sign up because that's how we keep the spammers out of there and then there's my website evelyntribley.com so wonderful thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure um yeah and if everyone has enjoyed this episode and learned so much as i'm sure you have be sure to use the hashtag train happy podcast tag at train happy podcast thank you so much and i'll see you next week bye Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 